Listen now to God's Word as we read from the Gospel of Mark, beginning at the second chapter. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. And he got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now picture the scene. It's not hard. Put yourself into it. You are in the sleepy fishing village of Capernaum, Along the seashore, there are several box-like stone houses, and you notice one in particular. There's a crowd that's gathered about the door, and inside the place is jammed with people, and standing in the middle of that crowd is Jesus of Nazareth. His reputation as a miracle worker has spread like wildfire. He healed a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue in Capernaum, and the news spread through all Galilee. And Jesus healed a leper, told the guy to not share the news of his healing with everybody around. In fact, Jesus gave him a stern warning. What did he do? He went out and blabbed it all over so that Jesus couldn't even go around without a crowd. He was now a big-time celebrity. So here he is, he's back home, and there's no rest for the weary. People are pressing in around him, and some have come who are skeptics, and some are just curious, and others have come out of desperate need. But all are intent on Jesus' words. Jesus is preaching when all of a sudden his message is punctuated by the sound of loud pounding above. And lo and, and, lo and behold, there's a, a, a window opening up, a hole opening up in the roof. The splinters and sand are coming down on everybody, and the dust begins to clear, and 
you see four faces up there, and they've got this large mat over the hole, and they've tied ropes to the corners, and they're lowering the mat. And down and down and down and down it comes. There's a man on that mat. Man is paralyzed, but he's there, standing at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus, forgetting the crowd, forgetting his sermon, he rivets his attention on that man lying in front of him. And out of the hushed silence, the shock, Jesus opens his mouth and he says, My son, your sins are forgiven. Hmm. Your sins are forgiven? The man doesn't want to hear all this religious stuff. The guy's paralyzed. The man wants to walk. This guy needs to be healed, not to be forgiven. What's Jesus talking about? Your sins are forgiven. But is that all he needs? Physical healing? Might not his needs be deeper than that? Jesus, being the great physician of body and of soul, diagnoses his inner spiritual problem, and it is far more devastating than his physical paralysis. Here's a man who desperately needs to be forgiven of his sins. Now, there's an unpopular word if there ever was one, right? Sins. Sin. This is not part of our current cultural vocabulary, that word, sin. We'd rather talk about weaknesses or mistakes or errors of judgment. Or the, we use the phrase, which I really don't care for, my bad. <laughs> but sin or sins, as I say, is not part of our vocabulary. The concept of sin, in fact, is rather quaint. And if you use the word sin as a moral category, watch how the conversation will stop at a cocktail party. <laughs> you don't use that word sin in polite company. Which is why I think it's a bit amazing that a New York Times columnist by the name of David Brooks, who has written on all sorts of secular matters and who is not a self-confessed believer, though he seems to be on a spiritual search, should write a book advocating the restoration of the word sin as part of our cultural vocabulary. The book is entitled The Road to Character. It's currently at the top of the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. I'd recommend the book to you, by the way. It's a great book. And Brooke writes, listen to this, he says, Today the word sin has lost its power and awesome intensity. It's used most frequently in the context of fattening desserts. <laughs> most people in daily conversation don't talk much about individual sin. If they talk about human evil at all, that evil is most often located in the structures of society, in inequality, oppression, racism, and so on, not in the human breast. We've abandoned the concept of sin. First, because we've left behind the depraved view of human nature. In the 18th and 
and even the 19th century, many people really did embrace the dark self-estimation expressed in the old Puritan prayer, yet I sin. Eternal Father, thou art good beyond all thought, but I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. That's simply too much darkness for the modern mentality. Now, to be sure, Brooks notes, the word sin has been abused to mean a wide variety of things. It's, it's used to declare war on all forms of pleasure. And it was used as a club by self-righteous people to point out others' failings. But Brooks goes on to say that the concept of sin is necessary because it's radically true. It is to say that, like the rest of us, you have some perversity in your nature. We want to do one thing, but we end up doing another. We want what we should not want. None of us wants to be hard-hearted, but sometimes we are. No one wants to self-deceive, but we rationalize all the time. No one wants to be cruel, but we are all blurt out things and regret them later. No one wants to be a bystander to commit sins of omission, but in the words of the poet Marguerite Wilkinson, we all commit the sin of unattempted loveliness. We really do have dappled souls. The same ambition that drives us to build a new company also drives us to be materialistic and to exploit. The same lust that leads to children leads to adultery. The same confidence that can lead to daring and, create, and creativity can lead to self-worship and arrogance. Man, Brooks is speaking truth. He says, we all have dappled souls. I mean, Brooks must have been reading the book of Isaiah or the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So Brooks... I don't think he is a, a believer, not a Christian, self-professed Christian, but he's being very biblical. He says, as a culture, we tend to focus on externals. We lavish attention on the body, on looking good, our physical appearance, being physically healthy. And we devote our attention to winning the material rewards that come with being outwardly successful. And yet, comparatively little attention anymore is focused on the internal importance of good character, which is developed and honed through internal struggle against sin in our life. Things like unselfish pride and greed and lust unrighteous anger, gluttony, envy, and so on and on. Those spiritual diseases that eat away at us and paralyze us. Listen one more time to Brooks. He says, the final reason sin is a necessary part of our mental furniture is that without it, the whole method of character building dissolves. From time immemorial, people have achieved glory by achieving great external things, but they have built character by struggling against their internal sins. 
People become solid, stable, and worthy of self-respect because they have defeated or at least struggled with their own inner demons. If you take away the concept of sin, then you take away the thing the good person struggles against. In our story, the paralytic is focused on the externals. He wants to be physically healed. He wants to walk. And he figures if he can just walk, then he will finally be happy. He will be content. He'll never complain again. But Jesus looks into his soul, and he sees that this man is in need of a much deeper kind of healing. This poor person needs to be forgiven of his sins, and his heart needs to be changed. This man needs to be freed of whatever it is that's blocking a healthy relationship with God and with others in his life. He needs to be made spiritually and emotionally whole. So Jesus gives him what he needs most. And ironically, he doesn't even know he needs it. My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus cares about our bodies. Jesus cares that hungry stomachs be fed. He fed the hungry. Jesus healed the blind and the lame and even raised the physically dead to life. But all the people he heals physically will eventually die. What Jesus cares about most is what matters eternally. That is the state of people's souls, the shape of their character, which is really the only thing that we take into heaven. Jesus came to reconcile sinners to God. He came to do what his name means, to save his people from their sins. As someone has put it, Jesus came not primarily to heal the world's cells, but to heal its souls. Now, there's something for us to learn from the paralytic in our story, among other things. Sometimes we want what we want is not necessarily what we most need. Physical health or outward material success and achievement are wonderful. And sometimes we think if we can just ask God for these things, then we shall be happy and content and fulfilled and satisfied. But in truth, only a healthy relationship with God can give us what our heart most needs. It begins with the forgiveness of sins made possible by Jesus himself. Now, we don't know what is blocking the man's relationship with God in our story. It's clear that his inner spirit is diseased, and so Jesus gives the paralytic what he most needs. My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, these words that, uh, that probably initially puzzle us are absolutely appalling to the ears of the religious leaders who are present in that crowd. We read in verse 6, now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They're absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. Now, Pastor Tim Keller shed some light on what's going on here. He says... Suppose Tom, Dick, and Harry walk into a room, and Tom punches Dick smack into the mouth, and there's blood everywhere. Harry 
goes up to Tom and says, Tom, I forgive you for punching Dick in the mouth. It's all right, it's over. Well, what is Dick going to say? Harry, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. Well, that's common sense. And then Keller says, do you know what Jesus is claiming when he looks at a man and says, I forgive all your sins, all of them? He's saying, all your sins have been against me. Everything you've ever done has been against me. And the only person who could possibly say to a human being that everything you've ever done wrong has been against me would be your creator, the person who made you, who says, I made you for a purpose, and when you violate that purpose, you see, you're violating the very thing I made you for. Only your creator, only your Lord could say that. Jesus Christ, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God Almighty. And the religious leaders know it. They realize this man is not just claiming to be a miracle worker, but he's claiming to be the Lord of the universe. I mean, wow. <laughs> Takes your breath away, right? Maybe you can see why the religious leaders are a little bit offended. So how does Jesus respond to them? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. Now, the question kind of hangs there for a while. But the answer is obvious. Of course it's a lot harder to forgive sins than to heal the body. Jesus' entire ministry is an indication of that. Jesus never met a physical disease he couldn't heal, couldn't cure. But he did meet skeptics and sinners that he could not convert. Because forgiveness of sins ultimately requires an act of the will on the receiver's part. And some folks who heard Jesus' most eloquent words about grace and forgiveness turned away unrepentant. And just to prove his point, Jesus then tells the man to pick up his mat and walk. How easy is that? Off he goes. Yeah, it's a lot easier to heal a man physically than to provide the deep kind of healing that's required to deal with the spiritual devastation caused by sin. Jesus knows it's a lot more difficult to forgive sins. He knows it personally, for it will require his own death upon the cross. Some commentators on Mark's gospel believe that this is the first foreshadowing of the cross here in the very beginning of the second chapter. Our healing will require something very hard, something very difficult, the Lord's death. We think of the words of Isaiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's easy to picture the scene in Capernaum that day, and we can see the house in our mind's eye, and we can place ourselves in the crowd. We can picture the paralytic lying there. But can you and I place ourselves on that mat, lying at Jesus' feet? Are we that paralytic? Are there parts of our personalities, places in our hearts that are spiritually diseased and are in need of Jesus' deep healing? 
Perhaps there are deep-seated emotional and spiritual needs in us that, of which we're not even aware. Well, listen to what Jesus is saying to you and me right now. My child, your sins are forgiven. Pick up your mat and walk into newness of life. And you and I do have to respond to that gift with an act of our will by repenting. That is, we turn away from sin, from the old life, all that would paralyze us and would undo us, and we move in a new direction into a God-transformed life. He takes broken people like you and me and heals us, changing our lives for the better, and He never leaves us as we are. He never leaves us as we are. He accepts us where we are. He comes to us where we are, but He doesn't want to leave us there in the old patterns of life, in the old sin. He wants to work by His Spirit, His transformation in our life so that we find wholeness and health. And for that, we say, thanks be to God that God cares that much about us. Now, there's one other thing that we need to note about this story, and it's something that probably struck you right away. And that's the persistence and the tenacity of the paralytic's four friends, who are so convinced that Jesus can help their friend that they are willing to take the trouble of opening up a hole in, in the roof to grant their friend access to the Lord. Can you imagine? Those friends were so convinced that this guy needed Jesus. Man, they, they spared no lengths to get their friend in front of, in front of him. And, he meant, and imagine Jesus just had to smile as he watched this operation take place before his very eyes. The extraordinary efforts of these men. And he was pleased with their faith. It says so right there in the passage. He was pleased with their faith. The paralytic needed a little help from his friends, and they were all certain, as I say, that Jesus could heal him. Do you and I really believe that Jesus can heal people and change their lives? Do we really believe that? Shouldn't then we be, shouldn't we be all trying to bring our friends to the Lord so they can meet Him and experience His forgiveness and love and find the deep healing that their soul longs for? I mean, if you and I really believe that Jesus can transform human lives for the better, then we will spare no effort to introduce our friends to Him. There would be so many people here on a Sunday, we couldn't control the crowd. Do we really believe Jesus can heal people? Or is it kind of like, same old, same old, Jesus loves everybody and stay as you are. Some people need Jesus, other people don't. That's okay. They'll find their own path. So what does it mean to bring our friends to the Lord? It may mean speaking to our friends about the difference Jesus has made in our own life and commending him as an answer to some of the deep-seated problems our friends, our acquaintances might have. I mean, can't we say that? How can anybody argue with that? Jesus has meant a lot to me. He's been an anchor for me. Check him out. 
If he helped me, maybe he can help you too. Hey, come to church with me. Check it out. Read the Bible. Read the gospel. Start there. Bringing our friends to the Lord may be engaging in concerted prayer and concentrated prayer for our friends, praying that their hearts would be open to the healing Jesus would provide, while at the same time being alert to opportunities to speak gospel truth into people's lives, especially when they're in crisis. Do you pray for your friends and acquaintances who don't know the Lord? And are you alert to the opportunities that you might have to share Jesus with them? Bringing our friends to the Lord may mean simply inviting our friends to worship or to a small group or to an event of the church. Maybe it could start there. There are many ways to bring friends to the Lord. You don't have to hit them over the head with the Bible, you know. But it does require persistence and tenacity. But really, if we truly believe that Jesus can heal our deepest needs and if we love people, why would we not want to share the good news about him and about what he can do? I mean, if we have found an amazing physician who offered a cure for the dread disease that ails us, wouldn't we want to tell others about him? We are all sinners in need of God's grace and forgiveness and the transformation of heart and life that he holds out to us. Thank God for giving us a healer, a real healer in Jesus. It is by his wounds we are healed. So take to heart the good news. In Jesus there is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God from whom we've been estranged, and the promise of new life in him. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you as sinners in need of your healing grace. Come into our hearts anew. Flood our, the cavities of our empty hearts with your love. And Lord, by your spirit, transform us into the people you would have us be. Thank you for your love, which never lets us go, which always seeks to make us better, shaping our character to be more like your son, Jesus. Lord, we have needs that we're not even aware of. But may the light of your love shine upon those shadowy areas, and bring your wholeness, your healing into our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.